Hello. Hello. Industry. Industry. Hey everybody, welcome to Industry Tactics, my podcast where I interview some of the finest outsider musicians uh, in the world. My name is Friendly Rich. I'm a weirdo musician and composer myself from Brampton, Canada. And uh, it's over 160 episodes at the moment that I've got cooking. And we're, we're going to be starting the journey again with CFRU in, uh, in Guelph, Ontario, one of my favorite cities, and really appreciate the support there. So they're going to be syndicating this show. And I thought it would be a good idea to spend the next two hours because they're going to do kind of two-hour features every Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on CFRU in Guelph. Uh, so this is a, this episode kind of goes all over the place. It celebrates the multitude of, uh, of, of weirdo artists that I've had the chance to speak with and interview. It gives you a little sampler, a little taster. Um, and then you can hopefully either start the journey again live in Guelph every Friday night or uh, subscribe and, and, and binge, binge listen if you like. I'm a binger. Uh, when I can, I, I like to binge a good podcast and, and, and it, it's been a real honor doing this thing. I'm learning a lot about myself and those, my peers, you know, it's a really great chance to, uh, to get to know new people who I've admired their work or, um, or people who I've known for years and just didn't know enough about them and where they come from artistically. So, um, want to dedicate this, this special supercut episode to my dear friend Mendelssohn Joe, who passed away uh, this week um, in in Elmsdale, where uh, where where he lived for for many years, and I've known him for over twenty three years. We were we were pen pals and just trying to kind of process the loss of Mendelssohn Joe. He's uh, he's he's in my the theme for this podcast. My God, he's uh, he's kind of. Uh, sprinkled throughout throughout my work, and he was a great influence on me, a great champion, um, and just always made you feel like you were special. And um, I'm really gonna miss Joe and writing those letters to him, and getting his uh, kind of monthly or even sometimes more uh, just like uh, message of encouragement. And um, anyway, here here it comes now. Uh, part of what I'm doing is uh, is a dedication. To Mendelssohn Joe and and many of the artists that are I, that are on this supercut episode and and featured throughout the podcast are actually uh, are actually uh, connected with me through Mendelssohn Joe. It's amazing how many artists uh, he has helped me. Kind of, he just created a community unto himself, and it's a real inspiration. So uh, this one's for you, Joe. Love you. Gonna miss you, and um, I hope you all really enjoy this journey with me on Industry Tactics. Thank you.
Uh, Joe sounds nice. That Thank was a you. nice little uh, sniffle. A Mendelssohn Joe sniffle. Mendelssohn Joe sniffle. Joe, well, just say hello for me. Hello. One more time. Hello. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. We're here. We made it. We're honored to be here in... Uh, Thank you. Would I say this is your living room? Uh, your this home. is This is actually the office area. We're here in the office area. And when I think of you, I think of memorable times painting... You, you've painted... I've had the, the honor of being painted by you twice. Yes, yeah? thank you. In that zone right there. I spoke to Hoxley about this, eating the fresh blueberries. He sat there, too. Yeah. And his mother sat there. Oh, that's special. I'm sure his dog would have sat there. His gr- his former girlfriend sat there. Unreal. Wow. She was very nice to me, too. And uh, I think of you in this room. Yes. Uh, and we're podcasting here, so you can't see the room, but... I think of you calling CBC Radio Ontario today and telling them what you think of the Ontario tax. I don't know, you know, the, the laws or just, you know, being a very active from this room. I yes, don't know. I, true. Do you write letters in this room? Yes. And uh, now I don't. The Almost none of the CBC programs have access via telephone anymore except Ontario Morning. Oh. So you can't get through to The Current. Okay. You can't get through to any of the programs on the telephone. So uh, that's because of the cuts, which began under Mulroney, accelerated under the liar, liberal Krejcian, and, of course, under the butcher, freak, fascist Harper. Okay. It's true, what I said. Oh, yeah. If you oh, lose yeah. CBC, You've been watching. You've if you been lose listening. CBC you, ha- you lose your spine, and without your spine, try and walk. Well, one of the things we've been talking about on the way up here is the slow decline of the public education system, the public health system, and our beloved public, CBC, public right? But if you, yeah. But it, if that's true, and I agree with you, if that's true, what are you doing about it? Well, I talked about you. Okay. And, I, and you are Thank an inspiration you. on that end to, to engage but with writing a letter, making it's a phone call. Letters... Letter. The only good thing about writing a letter, as opposed to sending it digitally, yeah. is is it takes up physical space. And and if you do write big postcards the way I do, yeah. everyone in the post office oh. gets gets to read the postcard. Yeah. Ooh, it's uh, it's refreshing yet a little difficult to hear uh, to hear Joe's voice. But um, I'm really thankful that we had all the time that we had together you know and and that he went out on his terms and um joe really in that last uh discussion and we'll hear more from him throughout this episode uh kind of reminded me of how connected he remained with his community he was a guy who lived secluded in the middle of the woods in a log home in emsdale ontario um and yet he wrote letters, he made phone calls, he stayed connected, he, we, we were pen pals, he always sent those postcards to you. And um, and that's a lesson, right? doesn't matter where you live in the world, but um, it's the way you kind of stay connected with your community that counts. And this is someone that he connected me with. This is my interview, an excerpt of my interview with Selena Martin. I first got, heard your, I heard your first, well, not your first record, but the... Uh, Oh, um, it's called... The second one's called Life Drawing Without Instruction. Life Drawing Without Instruction, thank you. Mm -hmm. Mendelssohn Joe gave me a copy of it. 
He said, of you course he this. did. Yeah, we, we both love life. We I both just love got life. another letter from him in the mail. You did, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so how, how is that going to happen? Are you going to tell him, look, I'm, I'm moving to France? I did, and then he sent something to my parents. And then my, and because and, he's got my parents. My, Sick. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I, I wrote him back saying, oh, I'm sort of uh, between addresses right now. Yeah. Um, but you can... Uh, you can send stuff to my parents have just sold the farm I grew up on so that address is no longer valid wow where my was parents that are, where did you my go parents up? are homeless as well as me right now right um, on. in the Ottawa Valley on a farm near a village called Pakenham Ontario wow sweet that's amazing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so wow. that just happened like a week ago that the farm uh, they packed up Pakenham yeah, they sure did what were they farming uh, beef cattle Oh, just like yeah. small scale, you know, like before it became trendy to have locally sourced, grass-fed. Uh, my dad was selling like just sides of beef to regular customers every year. Before like grass would, was a thing. They would water themselves before there was grass in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they would, and we fed, the, you know, we did hay. It wasn't a massive operation. It was wow. just, um, uh, and we had chickens and we had a horse and we had pigs for a bit and wow. geese. And who's who's we? Did you have siblings? You have, you have a, a sister, sister and a brother, sister and a brother. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. You're the mm-hmm. middle. I'm in the-, the middle. How'd yeah. you know? I don't know why I went for it. <laughs> <laughs> just pick the middle one. Yeah, you've got a middle nose. No, I, just <laughs> blindly, blind luck. Uh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So they sold the farm. They sold the farm. But they got one last Joe letter, letter with the word health written on the back. Of it. Sure, and, there uh, sure was. They're thinking, shit. Do I open this or leave it? <laughs> And then when I when I actually get solidified on my address in France, yeah, I know I know what that address is. I just don't have the keys yet because it's very complicated. Being as a foreigner, yeah, yeah, they don't. Just, anyway, I'll send it to them and we'll continue our correspondence. I've got How a, long has that been going? Uh, since the first record, I'm Bob Wiseman introduced me to him a long right time on. ago, and I used to play in Bob's band. And right I was. On. All right. <clears throat> All right, let's hear from Bob Wiseman then. Uh, Joe, Mendelssohn Joe would have connected me with Bob Wiseman early 2000s, and uh, I had him come and play at the Brampton Indie Arts Festival, and the rest is history. Bob produced my first record, and we became good pals through through Joe, again, through Joe. And I know Bob has wallpapered one of his, uh, actually the studio that I record him in here in this interview uh, with letters from Joe, so... Quite a beautiful thing. Here comes now some of my chat with Bob Wiseman. But, you know, and I think he gave me... No, that that is it. Joe does connect us. I'm going to give him yeah, full credit. I think you're right. He gave me your email. He's like, contact this guy. He's a genius. That's what he... Without blowing smoke. He says he's a genius. You are you are a true artist. I, I'm not going to blow more smoke than that, okay, Bob? But you're constantly... Uh, it, we did a little talk earlier. You're constantly hunting and curious and in love with the art of... of of of, of, the work. of of refining your work, you know, and yeah. and and, you, and your voice is 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 very unique. And I don't a lot think, by virtue of that, one's a genius. I mean, I just no. think that's part of your job, or I don't even know if that's part of your job, but that's part of my my relationship with it, yeah. and and yours. And there are certain kinds of people that their relationship with the thing they do yeah. is to just be doing it constantly. Yeah, to, you know, Obsessed, I think it's just that way. Yeah. That doesn't. They can be. They could be really horrible. <laughs> ah, Bob, that was from episode nineteen of Industry Tactics, and let's jump. Let's go to talk my talk. With uh, well, someone that, that that we're connected with through Selena Martin. This is my talk with Annalise uh, Narona, and uh, talking about working with some heavy hitters in the industry. Check this out. The biggest impressions, because they are dead, and also because they are history, would be James uh-huh. Brown and Oscar Peterson for sure. 
I got to work Sick. with both of those people. Here we go. Um, and wow. I mean, there were, I worked on some records, like both of those were the Oscar Peterson was a record. The James Brown yeah. was a re-record of sex machine for the movie tuxedo starring Jackie Chan, amazing. which was uh, an amazing experience because his band was James Brown's band. A couple of reasons. His band was massive. Yeah. Like, Ben comes okay. in before James, James Brown doesn't come in for until they had the studio booked for three days to, to do the one song. So the first yeah. day the band loads in and we set up and get sounds. So that is two drummers, a percussionist, two bass players, four guitar players, a keyboardist, a horn section, a backup vocal section, and then James Brown. Plus the coolest part is that, you know, the Cape guy, who, who takes his yeah. cape. He's yeah. on the yeah. musician's yeah. call for James Brown. So he had to be there in that session because he was on the call. Unbelievable. So he literally sits on the studio floor of Manta just sitting there because he's on the call. He's paid to be there, which is amazing. Wow. wow. Um, didn't play an instrument. Didn't play an didn't instrument. Play he was just there to, 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 be there. to robe and derobe the cape. <laughs> well, now, when that moment happened, though, when the cape had to come no, on the or cape, off, was he it a moment? Even wear the cape. What I'm saying is there was no cape at the studio. It was Unbelievable. So the second day, it was just rehearsals. The band rehearsed the one song that they had been on tour playing the whole time. They rehearsed it all day. The, the third wow. day, James Brown comes in. He comes in. He listens to the band in the control room. Yeah. Um, and then he goes out on the floor and he's like a caricature of himself. He's like, no, yeah. play it like this. <laughs> like, that's how he actually talked. Um, but, like, how did, how did he, he come was, across? He was very nice. The way he led he, the he band. Was very nice. Okay. He was, he, as, as far as to the band, he was very yeah. nitpicky. Like, he actually okay. got one of the drummers off his stool and sat down and replayed <sighs> the groove so that oh, he could amazing. show him where he wanted it to be. Oh, that's fun. And, that's and good to hear. And he would like uh, the horn section. He had a lot of notes for, and half of which I couldn't understand because you have to be fluent in James Brown. But okay. the guys, the horns would just be yes, Mister Brown, yes, Mister Brown. Like he goes, this is the, oh, it this was, was like, yes, Mister Brown. Like very okay. formal. Okay. They call everyone called him Mister Brown. And then he goes into his vocal booth, sings one. That's take old school, of, eh? One take of the song, and then leaves. Uh -huh. The band had been there for like, three it's days. Like, it's I, like, this is my one take. You get, see ya. Wow. I know. What an interesting approach. I mean, I, I mean, on so many levels, I, I hear you hear stories about him as a band leader and just, you know, so it sounds like he had great intent. There was, there was an old school kind of respect thing going on yeah. there. And one take, one, one take. One take is what you got from him. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and the band. What about I mean, Cape Man though? Like had I think Cape Man was an original member. There were they, one of the bass players was a original member, but I need to look. I need to do a deep dive into like stories like that. Just like they're they're why we're here, in my opinion. Not necessarily the uh, the main event. Like like Cape Man for me is a whole wormhole there that needs to be explored. I know, like, and he, I have not explored original. it. You gotta love that and. Uh, the hunt for Cape Man continues. I want to let you know we're not giving up on that mission. Thanks, Annalise, for uh, continuing to help us. And um, this is an interview with Matt Brubeck, where he gets into talking about his mom and her influence on her on his father Dave Brubeck's career. Just uh, it's those people kind of in the 
in, in the fringes sometimes that do amazing things to uh, to influence someone's career. This was a, a nifty little thing that really wasn't on my bingo card when I started chatting with Matt about his amazing career in music. Uh, but of course, uh, the influence of his father. This, check this out. That fascinates me, eh? How how just intrinsic it, the music is then, eh? W- was your mom musical? Yeah, she she could read music, and but she just had a great ear. She was a music appreciator and a really good, yeah. good yeah. critical listener, you know, and supportive of supportive you and, all going in that direction. Yeah. Like that's yeah, oh yeah. She spent a lot yeah. of time driving us, jittening us around, as you say, <laughs> to music great. lessons. You know, great, great term. Yeah, where did you grow up? What 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 city? Uh, Connecticut, Wilton, okay. Connecticut. It's pretty small. And what was the the tone of say someone like your father regarding like was it like whiplash like you know that shitty jazz film that i've never seen oh no where was your dad punching snares no 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 <laughs> no no good, well, good. My, i'm glad to hear it in fact glad to hear it. the what my father's technique which i experienced and i think most of my older siblings did yeah like the first piano lessons he yeah. had a pair of groucho marx glasses it was very Here ritualized. He would knock on the door. Uh-huh. I pretend he would pretend he was someone else, uh-huh. Professor Quackenbush or something. Great. I would pretend he was something else, and then we'd have like a half-hour piano lesson, right? And oh, he's doing it in character. He's doing it in character. Right. What's up with that? Well, just to separate himself from separate, being dad. Yeah, just separate the whole thing from being. This is before I've gone to another teacher, right? I'm I see. Learning I some see. really basic things. I see. Now that said, my yeah. father knew that he was not a very good teacher because he didn't have a lot of patience, mm-hmm. and okay. he knew that about himself. But he also knew okay. that he wanted us to like get get our you know toes in the water. Wow, wow. So we I just remember that, early yeah. stuff, you know, just yeah, like man. playing like yeah. Munster's theme, like boogie woogie sort of things. And, okay. you know. Okay. Was right. it all by ear or was he going? Was, yeah, it's by ear because my father, yeah, my father's complicated. He he really can't read. He could write music, but he really uh-huh. can't read music like a classical musician. He okay. really struggles got to got sight read. Like got he it, never got, got, it, got that it. together. Okay. I love this. This is beautiful. I almost thought of it as your father tongue, <laughs> because your your father would have been your first musical te- music teacher. That's really beautiful to me. Yeah, your father tongue. What an interview with Matt Brubeck. Please go check that out. One of the themes we talk a lot on this podcast about, unique to each musician, is their music education. And um, case in point, this next chat with the the synth wizard Lisa Belladonna unpacking her music education. So okay. I grew up in West Virginia and um self-taught musician, but grew up around a lot of amazing musical influence. Uh, my yep. parents being one of them, both avid music listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my aunt in uh, Akron, Ohio, was a country and Western musician. Her daughter was a rock and roll teenager, so I got lots of... Uh, influence from them with music mm-hmm. it was just already there it was already automatic and yeah growing up in west virginia i just you know really devoted my time to it and by the time i was and, a teenager, and i was already working you know 
by the time you were a teenager, you were already working in music. And what, what were your, what was, what were some of your first instruments? Was it, was it piano or guitar or all, all of the above? Uh, I would say drums and guitar, then uh, organ, and then piano, and then synthesizer, and then recording technique. <laughs> when you say organ, what, what kind of organ? Uh, I had a Wurlitzer organ, and my aunt had one as well. Um, and, you know, I always wanted a Hammond organ. You know, I grew up awesome. listening to John Lord and Ken Hensley and that kind of stuff. Always wanted to play a Hammond organ, but, you know, never luxury yep. until, you know, much later. And um, in Akron, Ohio, is Devo in the water there or not? Well, they weren't really part of my upbringing so much i mean i was aware of them and became more aware of them during my mom's second marriage which was when i was around nine Mm -hmm. and this gentleman had an extremely diverse music collection and really opened my mind to just a wide variety of music including classical music especially uh, jazz music you know pretty obscure rock, even by today's standards. Um, yeah. And New Wave. He was he was really hip. He just had a really cool, you know, love for music and art and calligraphy yeah. and sketching. And he was a really cool, huge, uh, huge inspiration on my youth with music and I love, art. That, this is beautiful to me, like, is the idea of, like, those influential people along the way that just kind of open up these wormholes to music history and change your life, change your voice, change your path, you know? Absolutely. I, I think that's the thing, even though I'm a self-taught musician, basically, I really had a, just a beautiful cornucopia of different humans that came through my life and really just made a very strong impression. Teachers. Yeah. Colleagues. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I feel very blessed. You know, so it took me maybe a little longer in certain ways, but I feel yeah. ahead of the game in others, you know, like any other right natural osmosis as a creator creating human <laughs> you gotta love that that was my talk with lisa belladonna uh check it out it is episode number hang on a second here now i'm gonna steer you in the right direction my talk lisa belladonna episode 110 and uh we speaking of people who have had a major influence on uh on us growing up I had the chance to talk with Trevor Dunn, who I'd worked with before um, on my pictures at an exhibition record, and it was a real honor to get into it with Trevor Dunn talking about uh, a very influential record on my life as a as a creator, uh, the Mr. Bungle Disco Volante record. Here it comes. <laughs> Making that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, I mean, yeah. personally, like the songs I wrote on that record... You know, the first song, everyone I went to high school with his dad was, I was a huge Melvin's fan. And I used to uh-huh. go see him play live all the time when I, once I moved to San Francisco. Uh-huh. And um, they were a huge influence on me. And that song was definitely kind of a nod to them, you know, a slow, yeah. 
yeah drudgy thing but then i'll you know i also wanted this like chaos you know and yeah yeah and then you know um phlegmatics was is a song that's based on a 12-tone row like the mm-hmm. 12-tone row so i was like i just had this idea like i'm gonna like i realized uh-huh. that Patton could kind of sing anything at that point you know yeah yeah and so i thought man i'm gonna write a a, a 12 row for him to sing yeah okay and okay. and I, like the first idea for that song was a melody with a drum beat and nothing else uh-huh. so that's kind of where that song started you know it was like basically a composition you know yeah um yeah so um there were parts of carrie stress in the jaw that were influenced by uh this alto player in new york tim Byrne, who I was yeah sure of, you know the section in the middle where there's like uh barry sax is doubling the guitar and there's mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. melody on top that was totally inspired by tim Byrne. you know so oh neat man neat you know i mean i in san francisco we were you know now we were exposed to all kinds of weirdo bands in the 90s and yeah there were so many record stores you know yeah we used to go to berkeley um you know across the bay near oakland and there was you know right within a two block radius there was amoeba there was a virgin a tower uh rasputin's was another big store like everyone you go into every one you'd spend like an hour in each one you know yeah yeah that's that's is that that's big in your practice a like just um ingesting like just getting as much as you can i guess so yeah i mean i i i think there are um is it still is it still like are you still hungry for new music yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's actually the thing i miss most about uh, going out last year is going out because yeah. i i love going to see bands i've never heard of or, yeah or you know bands i know very little about like i love yeah being surprised by stuff like that and i and also love now that I'm an old fart, I love seeing like young people yeah. go crazy, you know, and do. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm like, yes, p- kids are still. Angry, I mean, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think talking about shedding ego there for a little bit for me was that, that like energy, that, that childish energy, you know, that, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and getting, and, and just still appreciating it, but not having it necessarily. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't yeah. have to, I don't have to <laughs> jump in the pit, but, uh, yeah. I'm glad these yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um how has that been like aging with your friends and 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 continuing to make music? Like that's pretty much the reason I make music is is just to these relationships. So your relationship with with people like Zorn and uh-huh. and the, the guys in Bungle um Yeah. What has that meant for you? Good question, isn't it? Go check out episode 111 with Trevor Dunn for more on that one. Um, here's someone I also greatly admire. This is a pre-pandemic chat I had with the prolific Eric San, a.k.a. Kid Koala. Man, I you know, you can work with, it seems like anyone, because of your the, the, the breadth in what you can bring. You can read music. Is, is that important to you? Like, the you're, you're collaborating with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Uh, I don't know. Well, actually, honestly, for Prez Hall, they don't. Yeah, it's not they're like not they reading. have charts. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. If anything, it's just you just have to know the chord changes of you know. They'll say something like, "How does that okay, work?" Okay, we're gonna play when you're smiling in B flat three four, and then you're on. You wow, know what wow, I mean? So, wow. what a dream, eh? It is a dream. But again, I, I, I you know, I kind of grew up in, the, in my house. My father listened to all the you know standards and those all those classic jazz songs so they're kind of part of 
my DNA anyway, so I kind right. of just know it. You know, you can call a song like that, and then you, then then it's just go. It's, it's almost like you're surfing simultaneously with all these other musicians and trying to stay out of each other's way, and like you know. But from okay, them, like oh, the clarinet is bent to the third, and then you landed on the third at the same moment. Well, uh-huh. one of you has to move. You know what I mean? So uh-huh. you go up to the fifth or whatever. You know, and it's just this constant dialogue. It's really, really exciting music to perform. Probably the most. Wow. W- way more than DJing over records that you know front and back. Yeah. Um, although, you know what's exciting about about. DJing, I guess it's just just the type of energy that comes out of the speakers is is different than say uh, a trad jazz troupe playing yeah, together. Yeah. You know? But equally, I mean, for me, same level of adrenaline. Oh, I, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but I've learned more from playing like just one session with Prez Hall than I have DJing by myself for ten whoa, years. Whoa, whoa, there it is. But from them to like Mike Patton. Right, like that, I, right. I find it's just like, oh, okay. There's a musical diet that I can get into. You know, <laughs> Mike's crazy, amazing performer. Also, he's just so like just owns whatever uh, character he's trying to be. Uh, yeah, in 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 the music, you know. Yeah, he's like this kind of method singer. <laughs> I like that term. I you really do. I do. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. Well, I, listen, man. I, I I just wish you another hundred years of this kind of oozing <laughs> of creativity. But, but in all seriousness, you just playing around. But you know that's that was sure. the goal. That was the goal to just. Well, Krista Muir said when when she first started working with you, she goes, "Yeah, I got a call from Eric three years before the tour." Yeah, and went on living my life, and then he called me three months before the tour, and yeah. she had realized that you kind of map out like a three-year path. Oh yeah, is that at still le- happening? Minimum, at minimum. I think most of the projects I'm on, working on now, they're on a seven-year arc of completion. It seems. Holy shit! Some of them are more elaborate than others, but I'd love to crack open your laptop just for you know. <laughs> 15-minute glimpse would be really an com- amazing tour. It really comes down to... <laughs> There's gold in those hills. Check out the rest of that episode. That was number 33 with Kid Koala. And uh, a couple excerpts here from two uber creatives and prolific in their own right. This is my talks with Maylee Todd, followed by Robin Hatch. You've got it in you that, like, ab- just... You're celebrating creativity in your work. That's what's going down, mm-hmm. and I love that. Who are who are some of your uh, like big influences? If you you know what, do you need I was inspired by Kid Koala, son of a gun. Yeah, we'll have totally. big fun. Of course, it bleeds right into your work. That yeah. idea of you know what he said. He said he's got a seven year planning cycle going on. Right I now. love that. Good for him. He had a three year, but now he's like looking longer term. I love so, that. Good for him. Yeah, I find that very inspiring too, as an totally. artist, as a creator of someone that's doing it like the DIY thing, like yeah. doing what you're doing. It's like you got. Gotta, this shit don't happen accidentally, but it can all happen. Yeah, right. It, and it doesn't all happen at the same time, but it can all happen. Yeah, you just absolutely. gotta kind of chipping away, yeah, planning and yeah. chipping away. Yeah. yeah, yeah, patience and perseverance. I guess. Yeah, be, or would be a Todd, a Todd thing for sure. 
a, t- a Todd thing, like the, the yeah. long line of Todds? Yeah, my mom always said to me when I was young, patience and perseverance, so it always stuck with me. And I was like, apply that to learning an instrument, learning software. Because you'll get it. Yeah. You might be 100, but you'll get it. You'll get it more than you, if you weren't, to not to do the thing that you wanted to do. I couldn't have put it more eloquently myself. <laughs> And I appreciate all of the sharing. Uh, do, do you want to... Let's not even ask her what her favorite gig, uh, her most memorable gig is. Should we uh, ask her? I'll give you a Cole's notes. It was probably one of my first ones. Because wow. I was so nervous. And and um, and it, it was at the embassy. And uh, I just... I still remember it. I was... It just was like so, so magical for young Todd. Yeah. Yeah, it was like very sweet. And finishing it, you felt like, I want to level up? Yeah. Like, you didn't feel broken, like, better not do that again. No, I felt like so On to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. I was satisfied. I wasn't even thinking about the future or anything, really. I was just like, I was so satisfied. That's important. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was good. Got an email from Dweezil Zappa for a Zappa, play Zappa audition. Oh, yes. I, I saw this. Yeah, okay. Great. Um, so. Damn. I went to L.A. with the microtone people, landed and said, like, I'm staying in the Airbnb. I'm not coming to the NAMM show. <laughs> I'm, like, practicing. I was like, I'm sorry. This is this is the once-in-a-lifetime chance. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Whoa. spent f- four days straight transcribing in... Um, learning six pieces, like amazing. Uh, and then met with Dweezil and his wife on on the last day of my trip. Um, so you didn't end up going to Nam, like it, it was. I, well, I stayed in like near the show in Anaheim okay. and um, like went in for maybe twenty minutes twice. Wow! Wow! Dweezil and his wife, but that's really amazing. Very cool that. Um, very Thanks. cool that you know that that's in the works and that you're getting opportunities like that. I mean, good for you. How does that? Thanks. How does that it, happen? Does Dweezil Zappa get your phone number and call you? I have an agent in Los Angeles who uh-huh. I pay twenty bucks. It's like almost a scam where so I pay twenty bucks for. It's be- slightly better than Submit Hub, <laughs> but it's um, yeah. Like I've I happened to see the post on his Instagram. Okay. On this agent's Instagram, um, at the right time, and okay, wow. once every four years or so, he has a post like that. Like I, I had a wow. Neil Diamond audition once that I, you know. <laughs> Damn. Uh, but he doesn't usually get stuff, so. Okay. It. It was a fluke. Um, well, how beautiful. Yeah, it would have been. If I had gotten the visa, it would have meant I could tour solo music in the States without having to go through the P2 visa. Wow. Um, and then I'd be able to start getting like composing gigs, hopefully in the... Because LA is where the real money is, I think, for mm-hmm. sync placements and composing. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that something you, you are... like that is, that is something you're intending to try to pursue further? Like once things open up a bit or still into... If I have to, yeah, I think for me the dream job would be a 
sweet touring gig and then okay. I can make my own music for fun on the side that I don't have to try to hustle. Yeah. Got so it. it's just the love Got of it. music part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's um, great. That's a great design. And Robin's been doing just that since the pandemic opened up. Robin Hatch, episode 91. She's been touring with bands like Effed Up. And now we're going to go back to one of the early episodes. Episode number eight, my chat with Hawksley Workman. Like, we came from a time in Toronto. I remember seeing you at the Cameron House, that time you are talking about. Yeah. And came from this sort of... It's, it was a sort of a non-epoch or like a, an, uh, it wasn't a, a defined watershed. In Toronto, there was these unique voices that never came together to create a community that journalists could write about to call it a scene, like what happened 10 years later in Montreal. Mm. All of a sudden, Canada was put on the map. Thanks, Montreal. But in this weird time in Toronto, there was the Spooky Rubens, the John Southworth, the you, yeah. the me, the Sarah Sleens, like... Even even Rufus was an echo of a cabaret pop thing that was happening in Canada that never coalesced in that way that a journalist could have went, that was our cabaret pop era, you know? Yeah, so in a way, yeah. we had these disparate mega talents yeah. with no springboard to kind of go, this is a scene, this is an event, this is a watershed, this yeah. is a moment. Yeah. But I think that there was, at that time... I used to walk, or Dan Brick was another one. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm yeah. thinking about the people that I used to wander, you know, with empty pockets. These other poppers in Toronto who were desperate to make their unique voice heard. Southworth and I didn't walk around thinking about how are we going to get a record deal, how are we going to get played on the radio. Yeah. We were t we were walking around Toronto talking about how we were going to outdo one another in in our uniqueness or our wow. weirdness oh, wow. and stuff. And so stumbling in to see you perform. Both like, of you guys came that night. That's, that's right. right. We were yeah. on a, we were probably yes. on a stumble that night. Yeah, you like, were. <laughs> you, it, was, it, was, it was memorable. Yeah. And <laughs> I sort of feel that, <clears throat> like with everything, there is less and less and less opportunity. So with less opportunity, as applied specifically to the music business, I think that artists are being forced into compromise sooner. Like, I think that the mm. compromise element is, is a part of the creative element now because it's like, okay, we're only going to get one shot and we yeah. have these two, you know, avenues through which we can, we can try to run this gamut and, 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 or run this gauntlet and try to, try to get it in. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah, I, I, and I sort of feel like the uniqueness part. And again, I think too, we didn't grow up with the internet, so I have a real, I have a an innate trust now of people who didn't grow up with the internet because it yeah. meant the things that they learned came hard earned. You know. Speaking of someone else who grew up before the internet, this is a conversation with my dear friend, and, and he's since passed away about a year and a half ago as well, Murray Schaefer. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I've read, obviously, what you think about some things about getting along. Um, as an original, as a truly innovative composer, do you, do you find it difficult um, getting your ideas across in this country? Um, I think it's always been difficult for the kind of contemporary music that um, 
that we write to find an audience, a willing audience in Canada. Uh, It's much easier to find that audience in Europe. I mean, that's not an original statement. It just happens to be a fact that new music concerts in Europe are packed and sold out whereas uh, new music concerts here are struggling for survival. When I say new music, I'm talking about the kind of uh, contemporary music that we're writing. I'm not talking about new music in other areas, Mm -hmm. uh, popular music and Mm -hmm. so forth, which uh, certainly um, has an entirely different kind of clientele. But our our music is... um, uh, is attached, unfortunately, I think, to a tradition... Mm-hmm. And that tradition is the tradition of European composers, uh, classical European composers, uh, for which there isn't uh, very much uh, interest in Canada either. So um, it, it, I, it's perhaps mistaken, really, to see our our music as an extension of that tradition. I think that a lot of the things that we're doing... Uh, go in a totally different direction. For instance, um, you know, many of my pieces which are performed outdoors and uh, which involve the audience uh, as participants and so forth are far away from the European tradition that we've inherited. Mm -hmm. So they really belong to another genre. They belong to another kind of, uh, um, what, another kind of uh, uh, society uh, of... uh, of musical activities that hasn't really yet perhaps been identified mm-hmm. and separated from its origins. Well, go check out the rest of that episode. That was my chat with Murray Schaefer, the great Canadian composer. And uh, here's another great Canadian composer that I spoke with, Alison Cameron, uh, amazing performer and uh, and composer. Episode 75 of Industry Tactics. This is her story about hanging out with none other than John Cage. Um, There was a piece John Cage put out that was hugely influential, or it was rediscovered, I guess it wasn't. Okay. It's a piece from the 50s called String Quartet in Four Parts. Do you know that? No, I don't know. Um, But suddenly everyone had kind of, in the 80s, was going nuts about that piece. It was written in 52, I think. Okay. And um, What was the crux of it? Well, it's just the way that it used kind of rhythm and space and time. And when I thought about it afterwards, I thought, this is the piece that inspired every single thing that Morton Feldman ever did, mm. you know, basically. Mm. Um, mm. So I, I feel like wow, it was it was like his, his like, aha moment. When, but it was, it was like that for a lot of people. Um, mm. I actually, I followed up on an analysis of it. I made this crazy arrangement of it. Yeah for organ, banjo, trumpet, recorder, and guitar. You did? Yeah, really wow. nutty. I'd love to get that played again. Wow, wow, wow. Um, awesome. It was That's pretty awesome. nutty. Awesome. I actually phoned Cage and asked him if I could do that. So and? He, oh, yeah, he said, yeah, go for it, you know. Oh, that's amazing. I know. it was. I met him in New York uh, yeah. when I had my first piece played there in 1991. And Holy cow. And wow. then a year later, I went and actually hung out with him at his apartment. So that was really special. In New York? Yeah. yeah we we got to unpack that. Yeah, I mean... He was just such a cool guy, you know, like, um, he... Um, mushrooms? Lots of mushrooms? <laughs> Actually, he was cooking beans at the time. Yeah? Yeah, cooking beans with some... Um, He's putting mushrooms in those, though, right? Like he, was he not an avid like, fun guy? Yeah, totally. Like, he knew all his mushrooms, yeah? Yeah, he was an expert. Yeah. 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 That's I mean, awesome. Right, you know. You got to be. Well, I, I feel just really fortunate, you know, like, he gave me a book when I was there, and, mm-hmm. you know, I basically followed him around while he bought his plants, because he had, like, this 
super schedule for watering his plants. Like literally time and everything, this little yeah. bung would go off and go, okay, I have to really? water this one. Really? This one. Yeah. It was totally nuts. So, and then we talked about all the people we had in common, like people that we knew. And yeah. it, it was just really fun. <coughs> um, That's charming. Yeah. 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 And what, you just cold called them while you were there, like the first time, or you connected with them through... Yeah, it was It was actually through... Those two, circles? Well, I met him in 91, like we mm-hmm. sat together mm-hmm. uh, at our concerts, because mm-hmm. they, they do the marathon in alphabetical order, so oh. it was Cage Cameron, and, and so we got to, like, hear each other's pieces. And you got to love that. It was really fun. Right. Um, and then I, I had can, actually can, met Can you talk about the marathon a little bit for our listeners who don't know what it is? Oh, yeah, so the Bang on a Can... Uh, well, back in the old days, they mm-hmm. would they would rent a big space and have this thing called a marathon, and they would play every kind of new music, you know, from I don't know, Elliot Carter up to you know Steve Reich, and yeah. you know, just like nothing really bit particular to a style. But mm-hmm. um, they would have young and old composers, uh, a great mix of music, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just to kind of lay it all out there. I think they were one of the early kind of. Uh, organizations to do that to kind of just present it all as this is just all music you know yeah doesn't matter where it's from uptown downtown you know yeah it's just music yeah and so that was really neat um and and the and it was alphabetical order the way yeah that's, <laughs> I know, that's isn't that hilarious i like that yeah. i like that why not curate it's a system yeah. use it i'm yeah. not really sure if they kept doing that later <laughs> on but it was fun yeah. for me that particular time just because it was c-a-c-a right yeah um, wow so you meet John Cage just because the I Ching kind of just brought you together like that, eh? It's crazy, yeah. And yeah. then and then you're ne- and then you're in his apartment watering plants, like a, a year about, later, yeah. Yeah, talking yeah. about that's isn't it yeah. beautiful what yeah. music, yeah, the connections that music makes. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. I I had, um, but partly because of James Jim Tenney, I had to re- return yeah. a score to him. Um, Eric Satie's. Uh, Ah, something about stars. What is it? Des Etoiles, something. Yeah, about, sure. I can't remember what name okay. it is. But he was returning the score. Okay. And uh, asked me to just take it down, and, and so I did. And, huh? And then the next year, he, he died. You know, like it was Is so that crazy. right? Yeah, 92. He was like... Is that right? Yeah. Wow, yeah. so that was close to the end of his life. Yeah. That's an excerpt from episode 75, my talk with Allison Cameron. Uh, and now this is somebody Allison performs with in the band Curl. These are two talks I had with uh, none other than trumpeter and composer, the wonderful Nicole Rampersode. And, you know, I've kind of grown that over the years. Uh, I did a residency at the original somewhere there. Yeah. Scott Thompson again. Yes. Um, Yes. So it was a two-month residency, and I did a solo set and then played duo with another person. and. Um, what do you think of the importance of that model, that residency model that Scott Thompson, I mean, um, I mean, many a paper have been written on this. Mm-hmm. He was onto it, right? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it, how important was that for you? Very important. Um, I think it, it was great to have a space where I knew for two months I had this, this is what I'm doing on. on Tuesday nights or Monday nights or whatever. Yeah. 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 And I love that too. It's, it's so good. Yeah. Why why is that? What what's the magic there? I think it goes back to that focus of that you know, routine that like it's you know what it is? It's church. Yeah. But yeah. It, it it does have that sense of like mm-hmm. Yeah, I get I I wasn't getting that from my uh, early religious year. I don't know about y'all what what your religious experience was, but it, there is a Yeah. There is something there. There is something there, right? And, and I think the timing between those dates, 
you know, you the fermentation. Time. Yeah. And it's like, I'm going to bring this next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny, Curl did a residency too. Yeah. At somewhere there. Oh. Leading up to our, our recording. Okay. Yeah. It's a good way to workshop and just build, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. I mean, especially when you're not touring all the time. Because mm-hmm. that's what a touring, any touring outfit will get naturally, right? Night overnight. But yeah. if you're not doing that all the time, it's a way to tap into that same vein yeah. i think I, I agree for sure okay well good now that we solve that riddle the nova scotian dream what excites you about nova scotia or the east coast um what are you hoping the, is gonna yeah. how's it gonna pan out what are your um there's a couple things um I think one to have space both mentally and physically <laughs> space yeah. to yeah. really see some some projects come to true fruition so um musical projects musical projects um do tell yes so um my solo project i've played shows over the years yeah. um um in and around toronto in the GTA, mm-hmm. and you know, I I don't have an album out yet, so I want to sort of get that happening and just like like what what kind of an album? Like a solo works? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that sounds like the perfect project to do mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. from uh, from out there and right. Like that's that's cool and uh, that's very exciting. Yeah, and. Uh, and tangible right like it's like okay this is all on me exactly yeah i've also always wanted a space where people could come and you know either record music you know and i'd I'd happily record them are you are you are you moving towards that when you go to what's the name of the town uh well to be determined outside yet. of outside, outside of, halifax. of halifax yeah yes. yeah okay but um wow but wow. yeah how I love exciting that. yeah how exciting mm-hmm. um and how would you envision this space to be kind of a la somewhere there like somewhere or or a, a recording rehearsal studio or a mix of a mix of yeah. yeah neat neat yeah and and do you think your lifestyle will change is there a hope for that too? That going out there will either slow down or or, or shift because there's some kind of there's a different lifestyle out there, right? There is, yeah. and that's that's uh, a big part of what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, is, right on. I'm yeah. excited for you. Yeah. We we should begin. Welcome to Industry Tactics. My name is Friendly Rich, and I'm delighted. We never do this. Only with Ronaldo and the Loaf did I have another artist come back. The first live industry tactics. Really? The in first? In front of people, yes. The first one. This wow. is it here at, at Silence. So I'm delighted um, and excited to, to speak with you. Episode 62. So I've pretty much like 100 episodes later catching up with you. We did this and it went live September 10th, 2018. And um, I just listened to it fresh on my way here. And um, it was nice. It was nice to hear you were just on the precipice of leaving 
the GTA to go to new to go at that time to 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 the East Coast to New Brunswick, and then the pandemic in the middle of all that. How have you been as a human first, and then as an artist second, or the or vice versa? <laughs> all all in one. Um, I've been I've been well. Yeah, you've been well. Yeah, it's uh, I've been really enjoying the East Coast. Like just having space and, um, yeah, and I guess artistically, just what I've been up to has been really great too. You know, we were talking earlier about um, how a lot of what was driving the move was just a desire for change and to yeah. explore new things. And yeah, I feel really fortunate that I've been able to do that. Yeah. And you said at that time that you wanted to make mental and physical space for your for your artistic expression for for yourself. Um, did you achieve that? I, I think so. Yeah, um, you know, I've I've been able to um, sort of dig into some parts of my practice that kind of got put on the back burner in some of my final years in in Toronto. Not for bad reasons or anything. Just mm-hmm. you know, you get you get busy supporting you know other people as a collaborator and. Um, of course, always appreciate that, and it's. I'm just really fortunate to have the space to explore some things that I've been wanting to explore. Yeah, which was at that time you were thinking of doing a solo record. Yeah, and then the the pandemic hit. What timing <laughs> to pull off a solo recording? So, did you kind of hone in on that in the pandemic? Were you able to achieve that while you were in Southampton, New Brunswick? Did I get it right? You did. You nailed it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I did. And it's interesting because I have tried or had tried over the years to, um, to make a solo recording. And, um, it occurred to me that my approach to making a solo album, um, was sort of almost trying to replicate what happens in a live setting, in a studio setting. And, and I realized in the pandemic, it where you weren't playing live, um, that it was an opportunity to, to think about it differently. So, you know, in a solo performance, I think about the space, my relation to a space and the people in that space. And, mm-hmm. um, and so for the album, you know, on top of incorporating effects and things like that, um, it was interesting to think about the stereo space, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that's been really cool, you know, to explore that well congratulations to nicole ramper so that was a real pleasure to reconnect with you uh last year and um in that last episode i just mentioned ronaldo and the loaf such a great influence on 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 my work and they really were one of the reasons that i got into this silly game of making weirdo music here's an excerpt from my conversation with ronaldo and the loaf chiming in from portsmouth england I think one of the things, you were talking about the sound with the clarinet. I mean, part of the reason for that with the clarinet was the, the clarinet was the cheapest wind instrument that I could afford at the time. Cool. I would like to have bought a saxophone. So the clarinet sounds the way it does because it's me trying to make it sound like a saxophone, basically. And that also ties in with the way we um, approach playing the guitar. 
particularly in, in this sort of uh, Struve Sneff songs for Swinging Larvae, synthesizers were becoming very popular and we couldn't afford a synthesizer so we tried to make our guitars sound like synthesizers amazing that's right we, we tried to mimic things and been trying to mimic them they go wrong but then make something else you know if we uh wanted uh, a particular oh let's let's dave said let's make the clarinet sound like the uh, the saxophone that was Largely, I imagine, you know, done through using um, an effects pedal or something, yeah. you know, so you could yeah. fatten the sound up or multi-track it. Yeah. But in the end, it didn't sound like a saxophone. It didn't sound like a clarinet. It sounded like a, a third instrument. Yeah. And that's what I find so attractive is the, is the production and the experimentation in your music. I, I think about the gear that you use. Is it? Are you both gearheads? Do you have a lot of gear or like uh, like how do, how do you uh i don't know how how does that whole world work like it sounds like you're ve- it's very almost minimalist making the most out of a, an eight track or a four track or now well, yeah it's, it was always making the most of the resources we had and um pushing the resources into areas that they probably were never intended to go um if we ever did get a bit of uh, a new piece of equipment we always um try to find out what it would do if you did things with it that you weren't really supposed to do. Well, an aerosol can, right. you know, an aerosol can tells me that you'll squeeze music just out, out of just about anything, right? Yeah, well, what that came yeah. about, is like, you know, in the 80s, the early 80s, there were always the syn- syndrome sounds, you know? Yeah. Electronic yeah. drums, you know? Yeah. And you would get the... That sort of thing. Yeah. And we didn't have anything that would go... And so uh, we found, oh, actually, this deodorant spray makes a sort of a sound like it. And, and actually, was that looped, or did I, did I actually, actually play it all the way through? I don't think, I don't think we could have had um, three and a half minutes of the Lynx effect. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the room would have been pretty fuggy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another reason, that's another way how you get that sound, eh? Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening at home, all, all you young tacticians, uh, you squeeze music out of just about anything, and uh, and, and be careful for your health. It's like on Struve, Sneff, and Larvae, we yeah. you know using things that just came to hand as, as hacksaw blades. We used uh, uh, old, old bits of metal hanging up. I mean things which nowadays people think oh yeah it's fine i can sample that or i can get a sample then we just had to you know grab what there was and like we wanted a bass drum sound on um one track i think on his guava donut we wanted yeah, a bass yeah, drum we, sound we just, it was a 25 liter plastic um uh container is that right yeah it was well, a flocking uh, agent or something wasn't it yeah that's what it held originally yeah that's it's called flock drum on the record but it was a it was a, a particular flocculating agent or something. Yeah. It was some sort of liquid. Wow! Um, and so that was used. Mm. But it's like on uh, with improvising things like um, uh, on street called straight. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just the percussion mean... sound there. D- Dave made some drums out of cling film and pots and pans, didn't you? It, it was just one. It was just it was looped again, and it was just um, it was a piece of cling film stretched over a plastic cake mixing bowl, and then stretch the different tensions to make the different pitches of the um the different drum sounds and then all loop together oh you're blowing my mind here guys this is like um i don't know if you have this show in great britain but it's a, there's a show called how it's made here in, in canada it'll, it'll show you like how a school bus is made 
or how licorice gets made and and this is for oh yeah yeah i think it think it's on over here somewhere yeah that's kind of like it for me right now so what an honor episodes 24 part one and episodes 28 part two my talks with uh with ronaldo and the loaf apologies for that distorted vocal there but uh gold nonetheless in those hills and i, I what an honor to have brian Poole, one of the members of ronaldo sing on my my upcoming record man out of time so check that out he sings on the track kiddos and doggos and that record's coming out at the end of march staying in the universe of ralph records this was my chat honored to be able to chat with homer flynn uh from the cryptic corporation about the residence uh well you know in addition to music they were certainly influenced by filmmakers and writers and um, uh-huh. I certainly know that um, Kurt Vonnegut was someone at one point who was highly influential upon them. And, uh, you know, wow. part of what's interesting about the residents is their willingness to em- embrace the dark side of something. But I think what they really liked about Vonnegut, because he never had any problem with that either, right. but at the same time, he was always able to one find a sense of humor to it, and and also try to see what what glimmer of silver lining could be found around the edges of a you know huge whirlpool of darkness. Isn't that true? Eh? I just saw that Robert Weedy documentary on Vonnegut that I've been waiting uh, patiently for a decade. You probably saw it as well. No, no, no. I wasn't aware of that. Actually, it's 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 it been thirty years in the making. Like he followed him around for the last thirty years of his life. But in Vonnegut's writing is so much humor and darkness. But without that humor, and when you just look at his life. The life that he had to endure, um, you're, there's so much darkness that the humor is what got him through it. And um, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, without the humor, it's bleak. That's know? it. That's it. Um, one of the episodes I'm most proud of is episode number 76, where I went to London, Ontario, and uh, and other parts of Ontario, Peterborough as well to interview several of the members of the Nihilist Spasm Band who are also a huge influence uh, on my career. It was a real honor to, to get into their heads in terms of how they formed the band and the aesthetic behind the whole thing. So this is my some part of my chats with the Nihilist Spasm Band. How did the kernel of noise 
bloom out of you guys? Well, there was this guy in Elmira who uh, was the, uh, he was a math teacher, but he always wanted to teach music. But the music teacher, of course, had the job, and there was only one job as music teacher. Mm -hmm. And so this, this guy uh, who had the choir, it was, he did it after, after school. Mm -hmm. It was a tremendous choir because the man was a tremendous, uh, tremendous musician. Mm -hmm. And he had the choir and they sang and it was just wonderful. And he decided he'd like to do a recording and, uh, of, his, of his choir. Mm -hmm. And so he did, but he, he said, we got to have one side, we'll have the recording of the, of the choir and the other side, we're going to have the band. Of course, the band was directed by the music teacher, and the band was really, it was terribly, unbelievably terrible. Okay, It okay. was just terrible. So the, the guy said, oh, no. He said, just make it for you. Just, just have the, the, the choral part. And uh -huh. he said, no, no, it's got to be both. Okay. So the fellow consented. And the recording was done. So I've got the recording sitting in the cupboard over there. And on one side, you've got the, uh, the choir, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Helped, I suppose, by the fact that a lot of the singers were young Mennonites who sing in their churches. Okay, okay, and so they so were, they were well trained. Yeah, and meanwhile, on the other side was this uh, band, which was terrible, terrible. Okay, okay, and it was so so terrible. It was good. It was funny. It was wonderful. Ah. So I remember I brought it down to Greg's. Okay, at, uh, at his at his house and. I said, you got to hear this, Greg. So I, pl <laughs> I played the recording. And I said, and Greg was, we just sat there and laughed and laughed. And he thought this was tremendous. And I still think that is one of the main things that got the spasm then going. Because wow. I think Greg thought this would be great. Let's do the same thing. So this is um, audio footage from the record that apparently we're in Bill's living room inspired the Nihilus Spasm Band, a 1962 Elmira band, high school band, that Bill would have played for Kerno. Band. Um, and so the the formula that the band came up with was which was uh, almost entirely accidental but it was <laughs> to uh, have a group of interesting but dissimilar people kazooist uh, in the band uh, and founding member um, john uh, boyle build instruments uh whatever instruments they want and then uh, play together. 
without having ever any of us ever studied how to make music or how to improvise. You know, of course, we've heard other music. Right. We all had different tastes. But um, so we threw ourselves together with these instruments and each person could go in any direction that their imagination took them. And uh, the other people had to respond to the instruments. And then we get together and play. What do we play? Um, well, we had to do something and we just sort of started making noises and sounds. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, some, I think, um, uh, positive uh, compulsion within us dictated that we should not go off and learn how to do it, that we should just keep doing it. And if we're not happy with the way it was today, then next week we try it again and, uh, <laughs> and see if we can uh, uh, make it a little more satisfactory to ourselves. And uh, that worked. And uh, we began to know when we played well and when we didn't play well. Although we would be really hard-pressed to explain why it was good tonight and wasn't good uh, the other night. And in fact, we really rarely discussed even um, the what made it good or what didn't or how it should be changed or, you know, advising someone else that they uh, should change what they're doing because it's messing up what we're doing. Um, we just had fun. This is Bill Exley, the lead orator in the Nihilus Spasm Band, talking about those early days going by Greg Kernow's studio. He wanted to set up a studio which where people could visit, people would come, come. it would be sort of a center of discussion, yeah. uh, intellectual activity, uh -huh. and uh, art. And uh, so that's what he did. And that's, he's had that studio for a couple years there. And uh, indeed, it worked out just to be the way it was, and all the people showed up and came. Uh -huh. And we had uh, wonderful visits, and he got to know some people from the university. And I was at the university at the time, studying. Okay, you were a student there. What were you studying? I was a student. I was studying English and philosophy. Okay, okay. And so he wanted to know people of all types, and he knew, wanted to know artists, and he wanted to know uh, thinkers of various types. And uh, so he developed association with a whole lot of different people okay. who were very different from each other, really. Yeah. Tremendous variety. And, of course, from all that variety of people, yeah. uh, we found the people who made up the Spasm Band. Man, what an inspiration this, this, this is. Because it feels... I don't know how you classify what you guys were doing in those early days, but was it kind of like a collective or, or, or was it just a, a group of weirdos trying to figure out who well, they were? I think if you realize that one of the things we were really interested in was uh, the uh, anarchists, the European and Russian anarchists. You were inspired by them? Very much in yeah. the sense of uh, huh. this is exciting. Lack of trust of the old gray men who had come through the Second World War and who were not in touch with what was going on in the New World. 
Okay. The rock and roll revolution that grew. That was the that was in the water, right? That was kind of that was the air we were breathing. Yeah. 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 That was Doctor John Clement. Now let's hear from his wife Shirley. Um, what's it been like being uh, married to a member of the Nihilus Spasm Band? Uh, it's a very complex feeling. Um, oh. I'm very proud of what they've accomplished. Um, it's been frustrating at times. Uh, certainly whenever I've traveled with the band, uh, watching them mill is... <laughs> Um, That's highly entertaining. Experience. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's very entertaining. <laughs> but yes, it could be. I, I get it. I yeah, totally I mean, they're it, all nuts. So yeah, you, you'll start. You, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah hanger, hanger must come into play there. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I. It's been interesting in that uh, I've never seen another group of men. Yeah. Who function the way they do? Um, they're. They actually talk about things that um, are important the way women do. They aren't just talking about sports or, you know, yeah. the last last night's hockey game or let's go and play golf or something. Oh. They get into real issues. And I've never seen another group of men who hmm. function that way. That was a fun episode, episode 76, an excerpt, my talk with... Many of the members of the Nihilist Spasm Band. And let's go back now to episode two, where it all began. Uh, one of my, my initial talks with Dave Clark, leader of the Woodshed Orchestra, uh, member of the Rio Statics, and an incredible influence and, uh, and champion in my life. Here's my part of my talk with Dave Clark. Man, I'd love to talk to you about, I'd love to get the Rush story. There's so many stories you've told me over the years about like recording with Neil Peart. Sure, yeah. That are just amazing stories, but I, if you can do it. I I, would... I'm, I'm bringing, I'll, I'll try to, oh. I'll try to uh, do Johnny Pracy it down. and with a... like That must have been an, an unbelievable experience. Oh my God. Come on. <laughs> right? Man. You've been in a room with Neil Peart drumming. Uh, so what's yeah? the story? Well. What's... What's the I'll story tell you what there? the story is. <laughs> down, down, ba da down. Yeah. Down, down, ba da bang, gang, gang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the press on the room. Down, 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 and how about this one? Whoa. You know, it's like, uh, you know, from the first record to the next record, man. <laughs> yeah. When yeah. I was a kid, those guys made it seem possible. They're from my hometown. I love them. Yeah. Right? I, when they'd get interviewed on Q107, I thought I'd go out of my mind hearing Getty Lee talk. I couldn't believe it. He was human. Look at this guy. You know, he's the, look at that crazy hair, man. Listen to that. Thank you! Thank you! <laughs> yes! You know, you know the, the first live Rush album, when I when we play that record, it's like a triple gatefold. Holy shit, look at those pictures. It was shiny. They had big drums, man. They had, like, everything going on. And I loved all the jokes. I loved their humor. Yes. And I liked, I liked that they... Uh, 
for some reason they spoke to me and 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 and, uh, and it was just super exciting it's all i wanted to be man right. and my parents bless their souls they never once complained when i put those records on and like shook the house yeah. i would listen to yeah. every yeah. record one after the other yes. and then when i uh when i went to see them in concert in grade seven on the on a farewell to kings yeah yes <sighs> come on sitting in the blues and I was like, I cannot believe I'm here. I was here with Gordy Hanna. Gordy Hanna. Steve Halliday. Steve Halliday. Steve Halliday used to walk around his house lighting matches and throwing them on the rug. He was a little then like with a flamethrower with the, the with the paint can. Yeah. Like, we, okay. You know, I don't know where Steve is, but yeah. fuck, he looked like Hollis Cooper. Anyways, we were at the concert, and all of a sudden, you know, I was like, Yeah, okay, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And then it went dark. And then, like, everybody lit up their joints because that's what adults yeah, did. Right. And uh, we were sitting in the back, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> all the, the Klieg lights go on white. Poof. And it was like, down, 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 down. That was it, man. <laughs> that was it. But, okay, I've, I've kind of had that, too, but now you take all that energy. Sorry, I get, I get... And, and you're in the room with the guy that brought that to life. Oh, man, sorry. I got, I got waylaid. You can that was edit, awesome. You can Are you kidding me? When I, I, I just dreamt every night. I had pictures of them over my, over my sure. bed, and I listened sure. to them nonstop, and I thought... I, I, and I would dream of, of like the, the day that I get to sit in. I was going to play drums with Rush. Because Neil wasn't feeling good, and he called me up. He's called up Dave. You know, you're going to sit in on the, on the, on the gig tonight. Yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to do that, man. <laughs> and it was like, I can't believe it. And then all my life, it's like, rush, rush. It's like everything, man. I go to all the concerts. I'd see them play. It was phenomenal. I was like, hey, man, these I love these guys. And all their jokes. And, and it so just good. seems so... The, the big thing about it is it seems so friendly and loving. Yeah. And, yes. and, uh, and then... Uh, SCTV, a, you know, I couldn't it's like, believe yeah. it. I couldn't yeah. believe it. Like they, they yeah. were speaking my lingo, mm. and at the same time, like loving those guys. I was loving the Sex Pistols. You know, I loved Nana Scurry. I like the Bee Gees. You know, I yeah. like Barbra Streisand. I loved Led Zeppelin. Sure, ACDC. I love like you know, uh, you know. I started loving the Dead Kennedys. It didn't matter. Like it was all just music. Bob Marley, Willie Nelson. It didn't yeah. matter. Like like just music and. Uh, but those guys, man, they were a through line, and then all of a sudden, I was in the, we're playing with Real Statics, and we had a little little record dealy dealy dealio, and we were making our our, our, our record, and and uh, the management company uh, said, "Hey, do you want to see if we call up Neil Peart?" I said, "No, no, no." Uh, so I thought I couldn't believe it. Like, no, 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 don't do that. And and then then, then like uh, like a week or two later, the management company said, "Hey, Neil's coming to record with you." Unreal. And it's like what? And. Uh, we reset. So we were at uh, Reaction Studios, just on McGee Street over here, at uh, owned by uh, Sweet Orman Joven, and uh, who's best friends with Getty now. They they're like uh, those guys. They go riding bikes together all the time. Wow. And uh, Orman's a, a beautiful person. Anyways, uh, I sat on my drums in the room. The door opened, and I just about pat fainted. But it wasn't oh, it wasn't Neil. It was uh, it was uh, <laughs> Ed Robinson from the Barenaked Ladies, who's a sweetheart and a mighty fine drummer, by the way. And uh, he said, how you doing? I said, oh, yeah, I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. And, uh, and then Neil walked in the room with his kit, and he was just the nicest guy. Yeah. He treated me like I was his little brother and his peer at the same time, like with such gentle kindness uh-huh. and respect. And he was excited. He like said, oh, he said, oh, well, there's a, 
Oh, there's that's how the the junior Tony Williams gets that sound. Oh, that's what you're looking at because he was surprised by how I set up my drums. Okay. And he set up his yellow Gretsch uh, drum kit beside me and started talking about like I was thinking of taking some lessons and I'm thinking, yeah. wow, man, this guy's taking lessons. Like he's played on a couple of records. Woo, that was inspiring. I thought like Neil Peart needs to take lessons. I'm digging that. And I said, oh man, I used to maybe talk to my teacher Jim Blackley. He's great. He's a swinging guy. And he said, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out my left foot. I thought this is great. And then he deigned to play like he said yeah man like just tell me what you want to do and i played him this drum piece i'd written okay and uh, that had this poetry called guns on top of it that it had written and holy jumping he, we played it together and it was like I, i'd never been in a room with anybody who played drums like that oh. it was like stadium wow. rock volume wow and exciting man every note it was it was like picture perfect clarity with like the you just had this thing man it's yeah. like that's how you play the drums. <laughs> I'm doing that. And he just was, he said, you do you do your thing, Dave. I don't figure it out. And then he said, how about we try this? And I said, yeah. And I said, how about we try this? And he said, yeah. And we just like got excited together playing these drums. I was like, yeah, this is what I do with my friends. Oh, yeah, this guy's my friend now. Holy jumping. <laughs> what the hell? I'm playing drums with Neil Bird. And then like <sighs> I look up and there's a, there was an audience of guys and, and folks in the control room and and the uh, and, and the engineer Mike Phillip he he has uh, we got headphones on yeah, and yeah. he is he is the uh, Mike Phillips yeah Mike Phillips he has the uh, the talkback button pushed down by mistake and he hears and I hear Tyler Tyler Stewart go yeah Dave looks like he's shitting his pants out there <laughs> and I just said the over man I'm not shitting my pants but I edit and then Neil started to laugh and then we we recorded and while we were recording man. It was like some other person took me over, and okay, I, I okay. got through that thing because yeah. it was like the high. It was one of the highest highs of my life. I could <sighs> not believe it. It was like somebody said, "Hey man, go surf that wave in Hawaii." Like that yeah. twenty foot curl. It was like I'm going down that fucking wave now. <laughs> Boom! Let's go through it, man. And it was so exciting when we finished it. it I couldn't e- like I couldn't even register. And then, and then we uh, we hung out and we just had a good time. And Neil bought Neil bought all the pizza and stuff. And he said, "Man, this is great. I love it." And yeah. we, he said, "I said you want to play Tracy Parters? We'll like play some tambourines." And he said, "Yeah." And then we played some other bongo bingo bongo stuff on the record. Wow. We hung out. He knew the indie bands that were playing around town. He was totally tapped was, into what was going that's on. That's what I thought was so cool. Like one of the I think it's counterparts. He's wearing a real static shirt. Yeah, like, man. Like all posing. I'm like. That's got to be the coolest fucking thing ever. Imagine if you're in that band, you, yeah, it was, it and Neil Pierce wearing your fucking band shirt. I it's saw a modern drummer wearing that shirt. I thought, uh, that's it, man. I can hang up my boots yep. now. It's you're done. This is the afterlife. That's it. I'm after this. It's all gravy. And and I got to tell you, I I can barely tell that story with like I'm I'm the reason I'm being even louder and yes, more than yes. than now is because it's so exciting. Because <laughs> I'm trying not to cry. I'm cry. I'm gonna cry. Yeah, no, it's amazing. <laughs> it's it's an un- most people dream of that. I'm telling you, man. Oh yeah, right. I mean, oh it's, yeah. It's, like uh, it, it is. Beyond. I can't believe you had known I was a fucking rush geek for years. <laughs> he only told me this story like six months ago over wow. lunch. I can't believe you oh, held that wow. one back. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. And by the way, I've got this. Uh. In my experience, <laughs> I can tell you, I don't have that. I, you know everything about me that you need to know. That is an unbelievable story. But Dave. it's like with that terrifying thing where, like, your 13, 14, 15 year old, like, high Idol. dreams yes. are, like, crashing in front of your face. Like, it's happening oh, now. Yeah. And it, you're, I, I don't know. I, it's a good story. Oh, the, the, <laughs> you know, I just felt like the goddesses came down and, and, yeah. and 
kissed me with, with gold at that day because like that day changed my life and and uh you know like every day does but holy shit that day really i want to talk about the next day though like where the next day did you get up like head off the pillow like wow i fell on my head like, how many days it. did the afterglow days fucking years yeah man. he's I still believe he's it beaming right here there are, times, there are times when i look back at that and I, i'm not generally a person who, who like spends time reminiscing like sure it, it, like all the time like because i have such a beautiful life and like, like this is pretty dandy fine we're doing here now yeah it's like it's okay by me but uh <laughs> boy when i look back at that one i just can't believe it it's like those times like did i actually you know did i actually go there yeah with that person did we say that because it was unreal it was sublime and and it was so much fun and then you know there was a whole bunch of other stuff that that came out of that hanging out here and there and going backstage and and, and going to neil's place and wow. all kinds of stuff but I am eternally indebted to that band, and I have deep respect and love for them, and I will for the rest of my life. Right on, man. Apologies for the cuss words there, but uh, it's Rush, Dave Clark, getting into it, talking about his time connecting with Neil Peart, and bringing it back to our pal Mendelssohn Joe, who was a longtime pen pal with many artists through his life, one of them being Neil Peart himself. Um... The, we're going to end this, this uh, supercut episode of Industry Tactics with some words from Mendelssohn Joe. We're connected, Joe, by yes. the CBC. We are. It's our spine. It's our cultural spine. But you, no, I mean you and I. I mean, yes, I mean this, that's this, how I found okay. you. You wrote a letter. You wrote a letter blindly to the CBC and said, "This was an interesting thing that I heard. Please send it and connect with this guy." And boom, that was what. How many years ago was that? Do you know? No, but I, what I do know is is they are running out of stamps at the CBC. Yeah. The CBC, uh, uh, it's been butchered, and it's because of the passivity of people, mm-hmm. al- allowing it, tolerating it. And if you really care about the CBC, which uh, I just wrote a card about, uh, just to um, Melanie Jolie. Yeah. She's the minister yeah. of Heritage. Uh, culture. Yes. I think. I, yes, heritage. I just yeah. met her uh, in, she's in Toronto. The, yes. She's the person we have to deal with in order to reach Trudeau for to make him uh, reinvest in the CBC. Right. It, we're and they just did. They just announced it. So that's the beginning. That's exciting. Uh, I think. Uh, 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 okay, it is. You're you're right. You know. So I'll just say good. What take me through so. Joe, you reached out to the CBC because you heard Rich on the CBC. Yeah, he must have done something on the CBC. What, because would, what would that have been, Richard? It was a, a, a thing, uh, a piece on Outfront called Brampton Losers, celebrating the underdogs. And what year? Oh, my God. Who knows? No one Long knows. Long time ago. 2000? Over 10 years no. ago. No. Yeah, it would, I would say it was probably late 90s, early 2000s. And know. it was musical or it was... It was, it was a bit of both, right? It, it had musical weirdos. Was, it, was, it was celebrating weirdos in my hometown. All I know was, was is right. yeah. if I respond to it in a positive way, it must have real value. Right. Because I'm, I'm, I don't respond to things uh, unless they're odious or... They, they show imagination. Joe, it had real you, value to me, though, because, you know, you found me. This guy living out here had ears, you know, and uh, and a heart. And, and that meant the world. It still means the world to me that well, it's it makes because you feel less you alone. You like me because I'm not passive. That's why you like me. Because I respond to something that you, in your case, right. you are putting out in the world. Right. right. So uh, 
most people are passive. They don't respond. They don't recognize their culture when it's in their ears or in their face. They don't recognize it. Once you're dead, they recognize you. That's why this sure. media glut over Rob Ford. I took two gravels the other day <laughs> listening and, and what, reading about Rob Ford. Uh -huh. Th that's what makes people jump. Uh, yeah. They have Death. to remember that our culture is available to us all the time, every minute of our lives. And it's alive. Thank yeah. you, sir. Yeah. So you guys, you guys were, you heard something. You reached out to Richard, and then Richard reached back. Yeah. Yeah. We and we've been writing letters ever since, and it, it, it keeps getting richer and richer. And, and uh, I have a whole box at home full of <laughs> because the way we write letters is, yeah. and I, it took me a couple of uh, letters to figure this out. He Joe, when I first wrote him a letter, said, "Your handwriting is atrocious." I can't read what you're not communicating properly. So ever since I've been using my computer, I'll type it out. You're good. I'll type it out. I follow your rules. Yeah, but when you write your thesis, they're not doing it in your handwriting. It'll oh, be I typed God knows. out. I hope not. And uh, <laughs> thank you. And uh, and so Joe will mark the letter, write on it, and it's a back and forth. So I have entire the entire conversation over these oh, 15, 20 years maybe. Yeah. Not true. I write to you uh, spontaneously without having to re respond to you. Right, that's And I nice. save those too. Okay. So but some those, of them are one-sided. But that means you can read my writing. <laughs> oh, I've learned to understand every word. Inspiratio. <laughs> All the Joeisms mm. We know and accept and love. I enjoy um, writing letters uh, to people that I care about. and I, I think it's beautiful. Well, it's, it, I think it's beautiful. I'm always, you know, I, I really get excited by by mail. So yeah. But when I look in that mailbox and there's a Joe letter, you know it because it's thank you. It, it, it's painted, right? It's well, it's not painted, but well, it feels it's colorful. Maybe it's very colorful and sharpied out. That was an excerpt from episode eight, the late great Mendelssohn Joe. Check that out, um, Joe. We dedicate this episode to you, of course, and. Um, Thanks, CFRU, for coming on board and syndicating the show. Really excited for all of you to get on board if you're new to the podcast and uh, and listen along with us. Many great episodes to come. You can learn more about my work at FriendlyRich.com, and we'll see you again very soon on Industry Tactics.